we can. Hello and welcome to the Busyness Podcast. My name is Emily Austin. I'm the founder and CEO of a London-based PR agency called Emerge. I'm passionate about launching and scaling small businesses and have been fortunate enough in my 13-year career to work with some of the most exciting, category-defining brands in the world. I started my business when I was 22 years old, fresh out of university. Since that time, the world has got louder. Our expectations have become greater and our lives have become busier. Fobbing friends off with the stock answer we've all become accustomed to, I'm so busy, is an attempt to compel, conflate and convince. But when did being too busy become a mark of status? Why is the goal to never have any free time? And just what the fuck is everyone doing? Are we setting unrealistic expectations for future entrepreneurs and business owners by encouraging them that a maniacal approach to diarising is the standard? This podcast aims to give you a realistic, detailed insight into the honest stories, the failures, the triumphs, the intricacies, the mistakes, the comebacks, the fuck-ups from those set to make their mark, the leaders, movers and shakers, trailblazers and game changers. We cover imposter syndrome, hiring and firing, call-out culture, anxiety, global growth, daily routines and knowing when to quit, choosing the best in the busyness to help you cut through the noise and optimise your success. Ben Liebus is the founder and director of Mob Kitchen and number one best-selling author with over five published books. Having taken the social media world by storm with his one-minute how-to-make recipe videos, Ben launched Mob Kitchen to show how cooking healthy, delicious food is easy, affordable and fun. We talked about how to work out which social media platforms to focus on, how quickly things change, why you always have to be five steps ahead, what innovation looks like in this category, and how to run the business remotely in COVID. When I recorded this with Ben, he was keen to move office, which he has now done in real life. The business is growing, the team is expanding, and Ben isn't slowing down. Having captured the student market, Mob Kitchen is set for growth, And I'm sure this exciting business journey will inspire you. I guess the good jumping off point is for you to talk a little bit more about Mob Kitchen as it is now and sort of what what the what the business is, what you do and what's your role within the company. Yeah, definitely. Um, So Mob Kitchen as it is now is a... um, Uh, online food media platform um uh, our kind of our largest platform is uh, instagram but we have a uh we have a big website that was our biggest project last year that hosts all of our videos and our recipes and is where we sort of divert most of our traffic uh for our users um and yeah you know where it really started is me creating recipe videos out of mum and dad's kitchen after i left university it's now we're we're a full-time team of 15 um we have kind of various different you know forms of media within the business whether that's kind of more long-form written articles or long-form video content or shorter form overhead video content different kind of chefs and uh recipe contributors um who you know have their own kind of followings and presence on the platform um 
And where it, where I'm sort of looking, you know, where we're looking to kind of drive it is, you know, something like a, you know, either like a kind of a food version of vice or a UK version of Bon Appetit, um, you know, like a, an all encompassing food media platform, um, you know, that has lots of different kind of elements and facets to it. And yeah, you know, it feels definitely, you know, at the start of lockdown, we were four people, um, and the growth that we've experienced since then definitely feels like we're on, you know, on the right road and on the right path to getting to that point. Do you think that you guys are one of the businesses that has benefited from lockdown? I mean, I, have exposure to my team and my clients and my friends and I think a lot of people generally have been cooking more probably buying Mm. cookbooks more if nothing else it's something to do but obviously other parts of your business the USP being uh the the price do you think that um being remote and being more kind of conscious of lifestyle etc has actually been a good thing for the business definitely I I feel bad saying it because I know that so many other businesses have had such a rough ride of it, but, um, we, yeah, I mean, we had our, we had our, you know, highest, uh, turnover, uh, quarter, you know, since the business started last quarter. Um, and you know, all of that money is reinvested and pumped back in. And, you know, that's, that's resulted in the kind of increasing team size. Um, the audience has increased massively. Uh, I think we've probably, uh, I think we've probably sort of doubled or trebled since the start of the first lockdown in terms of our overall audience size. Um, so yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you know, two two factors. Obviously, people are spending way more time online and on digital. Firstly, and secondly, people are spending more time thinking about what they want to cook and cooking at home. And so those two things, you know, for us have been a kind of a perfect storm for for growth. Um, you know, across all areas. So. Yeah, but I do feel bad saying it because I know, <clears throat> I know that, you know, probably the majority have experienced kind of directly the opposite um, of that. So, yeah. Mm. I think it's interesting because we, we had a really like even split with our clients in terms of like who's done really well, brands like mm. Huel and Fit and at home fitness propositions, et cetera. And then other businesses in the beauty industry and physical gyms and things like that, which have obviously been um the impact has been probably devastating for them but I find it really interesting so many people I speak to who've done well feel they need to apologize as a result of like benefiting from something but I think in my experience and I'd be interested to know what you think if you're you need a perfect storm of timing and marketplace but also ability and infrastructure because if you'd seen this growth in the first month when you started it probably would have been and presumptuous of me to say, but probably overwhelming and you couldn't necessarily deal with it or hire fast enough or manage everything. Do you, why do you see it as a, something you need to apologize for that, you know, you've created a business that can thrive and grow yeah. when the market asks for that? Yeah. Good point. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. Like I always feel like an apologetic schoolboy forever. So that's probably like the deep down reason inside of me, uh, to apologize for any kind of success or anything that might. Yeah. But I think, um, I mean, obviously definitely being a social media based business, you know, we're, we're constantly kind of hit with posts and updates from, you know, all various collaborators along the way who are having a more hard time of it. So I guess, you know, there is a, 
there's just a kind of a very deep awareness of the fact that it, this isn't a kind of shared or universal experience. But, you know, obviously I am, I am aware and, you know, I am aware of the fact that we definitely like teed ourselves up, you know, to be able to take advantage of what was a really crappy situation. And mm. I'm really proud of the fact that, you know, we, we had the business and the platform at such a point at that time that allowed us to kind of flourish as a result of it. So I definitely feel pride and, um, you know, pride, pride of the team and pride over where we managed to get the platform. Um, but yeah, I guess just a kind of awareness that, um, you know, that it has just been such a hard time and it sort of feels, it feels somewhat inappropriate to, kind of completely publicly revel in that without without kind of at least showing an awareness that others haven't been able to do the same mm, but by the sounds of your growth you're employing a load more people so definitely like paying it forward into exactly into... Mm. yeah that so feels great me, so tell me so I read um online a little bit about some of the marketing tactics that you used early on and I do want to ask you about Instagram and I do want to talk to you a little bit about um the photography and obviously um the trends that we've seen online with with food and how it's presented and what what the requirements are to that but what were some of the early stage marketing tactics in term when you decided that you wanted to start pushing the business outside of just your immediate contact base Mm, um so I mean getting that immediate contact base in at the beginning was the most crucial thing I did and I think that sometimes people overlook um I think sometimes people overlook the power of their friendship circle in terms of like you know the the way in which they can help getting the word out and there's often I think this mentality when trying to start something that you want to kind of you know do it on your own and then sort of once it's established look back and say to everyone look what I've managed to do on my own but you know asking my friends for help at the beginning was I mean a hundred percent the like most important thing that I did um but then yeah you know after you know after mob was sort of a bit more established within the friendship circles and within like those friendship circles beyond that um there was a necessity in order to really build out the platform to start branching into you know, new friendship groups and groups, you know, new mobs entirely. And I don't know, one thing that I did was, uh, there's a, there's a Google Chrome extension that, um, if you download, it allows you to invite your whole friendship group on Facebook to like a page in one click. Um, and without the extension, you kind of have to go through the list and invite people individually. And, every time someone new liked the Facebook page, because it was all on Facebook at the beginning. So every time someone new liked the Facebook page, um, I would send them a private message and um, ask them if they would download the Google Chrome extension. And in return for me paying them a tenner and invite all of their friends to like the page. And lots of them did it. And it was a really nice way of it was a really nice way of kind of, you know, getting into new friendship circles, um, you know, having a huge host of people invited to like the page who I have zero social connection with at all. Um, and was a good way to kind of branch it out. When I looked through back through my DMs on Facebook back to those days, about 50% of all the people in my inbox are now kind of grayed out as I think I was blocked by thousands of people. Um, but that was definitely like a really good way to to get the word out at the beginning. 
Yeah, and I think also a good lesson that there's so much complexity now. And I think there's a, like, I started my business in 2012. And obviously, there's been a huge evolution of the way that people operate their PR and marketing structures and audio being a very obvious additional newcomer to how people download media. But there's a real like simplicity to that. It's like, this is my core audience. These are other people on the periphery of my network. I'm going to reach out to them and talk to them. And that's kind of the essence of organic marketing. And now there seems to be, you know, every time I speak to a new business, it's like, we must have a digital agency. We must have that. And it, it, it suddenly feels very big, very quickly in terms of mm. overhead and commitment. And actually your kind of uh, ground roots, I guess, kind of guerrilla marketing was was what probably provided you with that success from a, from a word of mouth marketing perspective right at the beginning. Yeah. It was, I feel very lucky though, because it was, I mean, it, there were, there were like lots of different elements of the Facebook platform that allow, that makes that so much easier. I think Instagram is so much more difficult to hack. Um, and <clears throat> kind of growing organically on Instagram. I mean, it's something that I've had, it's something that's been a struggle for us for, you know, there's, there's never been a single viral moment for mob and that like it's been kind of like slow and steady attrition, just like keep on going, keep on doing the things that we know work. But, you know, it's a, it's like a long and arduous process and there's so much talent, food talent on Instagram that finds it very difficult, find it very difficult to break through. And they don't, there aren't those kind of like little hacks that you can do, like inviting all of your friends. Um, I think that's also why, you know, TikTok has seen such a kind of surge because <clears throat> it's so, um, I don't know, it sort of like democratizes virality and means that people can like break out and go viral and have these like big kind of viral moments without the, without the kind of like the patronage of, you know, a lad Bible or a uni lad or mm. like a Jamie Oliver to kind of like pick someone out of, you know, obscurity and rise them up. Um, that's the beauty I think of TikTok and, you know, reels to an extent it's happening a bit now. There are like a couple of, you know, foodie, foodie pages that have seen astronomic rises um, just through kind of nailing their reels format. So, so yeah. You talk about um, clickbait cooking. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that is and how that um, idea fed into your initial response to trying to cut through some of that noise on social media? Yeah. So, um, so when I was in my last year of Edinburgh, there was, uh, the big explosion in overhead food videos as pioneered by, um, tasty Buzzfeed's food channel. Um, and they created the first ever overhead videos and they were addictive and I like loved them and they released two a day and they started releasing them when I was writing my dissertation. And it was like the greatest form of procrastination ever. And I uh, would watch them religiously, but I did one thing I was sort of, you know, hated or felt underwhelmed by was how it, it all seemed to kind of revolve around food porn and that they, you know, the videos are like beautifully edited and so quick and like easy on the eye, but <clears throat> it was never going to be, I didn't feel like the videos were created with the end in mind that the user would then, you know, go and buy the ingredients and cook the recipe, which seemed like such a, 
a shame um, given that it was probably the most like, hotly engaged in food platform online. And, you know, the fact that that hotly engaged in food platform didn't actually go and properly inspire people to go and cook felt like there was quite a big divide there. So, um, so yeah, you know, I just, I had this, you know, I had this idea of wanting to, you know, make videos like those videos, you know, in the same kind of style that was obviously resonating so much with our demographic, you know, people my age, people I was at uni with, my mates, um, but with recipes that people would actually want to cook. And um, so I think that it probably tied into the fact that we've never, I mean, like this is one way that I sort of rationalize it in my brain to make me feel better, that we've never had this kind of big viral takeoff moment where we've uploaded a piece of content and it's gone crazy viral because we've always had to kind of uh, tread that line between creating a video that we know is going to generate a lot of engagement that often takes the form of a kind of really wacky out there food porny type recipe uh and you know recipes that people will actually cook and find things that will kind of like sit along that line um so so yeah no it was really just in you know in response to you know the huge amount of food porn that was out there and wanting to create something that people would actually use um and you know, and cook from. Do you think that that's a massive pressure for startups, young business owners, young brands, that there's this expectation of like everything overnight, all at once. It's like very, there's a sort of pressure to perform and deliver huge campaigns and moments and from a viral perspective, have loads of followers, et cetera. And do you think that's unavoidable now because there's just so many eyeballs everywhere that brands have to, test and learn on those channels or do you think it's kind of an an unhealthy thing to be encouraging young business owners to to work towards because but just and the, you know to to add to that your your language around like the kind of slow and steady piece is like most people i know who started successful businesses have either failed a couple of times or they've just like ground away at it for a long time mm. i know very mm. few people who did anything interesting in like a year because it just doesn't really happen but no. through the lens of social media it all looks like it speed. yeah yeah i mean definitely as a digital business as well where our kind of our uh you know even still now you know the amount that the amount of money that we can charge from clients and you know the the size of our campaigns are, there's a direct correlation between that and our audience size so you know the bigger the audience size the bigger the mob uh the bigger the business and you know when you're in a world where you're operating in a world where you know what back when i back when i started it it was when like there was the big surges in like lad bible and uni lads that were going kind of crazy mega viral and now you know more on instagram you have you know someone goes on love island for like eight episodes and suddenly they've got you know 1.7 million followers like there is that idea that things because they do things go from, you know, zero to a hundred, you know, even within a day. Um, and I would say it's dangerous. Yeah. Because actually I would, you know, I, I would completely agree with you. I would say that the businesses that, and even the, the, even the kind of the personal platforms that have real longevity and, you know, properly long-term engaged audience and following, uh, are the ones where, uh, and customer base are the ones where there's a slower build and you build up that loyalty with those, you know, with those users, with those customers over time. And it's not just kind of overnight flash in a pan. Um, 
thing because although it's kind of exciting when you know while that's happening actually i don't think i think it's quite rare that then it kind of you know lasts really long term um but but yeah no it, it is it must be very challenging for people starting new businesses because that you know there's so much about you know success stories and like quick growth and everything and then you know while you're there like in I don't know, you know, like right at the beginning of it all, it just, it, it would definitely be very overwhelming and like full on dealing with all of that noise for sure. Did you, did you have to filter a lot of that? Cause you were a one man band at the beginning and then had, is it, was it a business partner or was it your mm. mate who you brought on as a photographer? Rupert, who was um, who was in in Apsley with me, um, but yeah, was that a um, were you like, oh, this is now because because I guess I wanted to ask you about the photography piece, but were you conscious that oh, this is now a bit bigger than just me having a go, or were you like, there's a really key skill set that I don't have that I need to find someone to put to partner with? Oh yeah, definitely the latter, and also I didn't, you know, I didn't. Rupert didn't get. Um, I didn't pay Rupert or I didn't, uh, well, uh, I paid Rupert in equity um, for those first six months. I mean, like, you know, there wasn't any money. So um, it definitely wasn't an indication of our kind of like first big hire. It was really because we had hired out a couple of guys I was at university with in the summer when I graduated to film the first batch of recipes that took me to January 2017. Um, And then when I ran out of that content, uh, I rang up Rupert and I didn't have any money and I knew that he had access to camera equipment and he knew how to film. I knew how to edit, but I needed someone to be able to come up with the equipment and film. And, and that was the start of that really. Yeah. And so at the beginning we kind of worked for equity and then I, and then I, you know, started paying him for the weekends that he would come up and he had the equity and, um, and then he became, and then he did become eventually Mob's first proper employee. You know, once we, I mean, it was ages. It was like, you know, when before we like really kind of like got our, you know, got our acts together and like became a proper business and, you know, like became incorporated and had people on the payroll. It was probably like, I don't know, uh, 18 months in or. Oh, wow. Yeah. So were you just, was your, was your idea like, let's get this going. Let's figure out where it kind of lands. And as, and when we feel we need to apply the rigor of like the business structure, we'll do that when we get to that point. It wasn't like, let's formalize this really early on. Completely. Um, completely. I guess like the mantra of like, if you build it, they will come type thing. Um, so I, you know, I had a, you know, I had a vague understanding of the business models of, you know, Unilad and Lad Bible and Jungle Creations, who are a big social publishing media platform. They have lots of different, uh, you know, different kind of media outlets. Um, and, I, you know, I had a vague understanding of the pay partnerships and the branded content deals that they would, you know, that they would be able to bring on um, that, you know, obviously as a result of their reach and the views that they could guarantee these brands, um, and I knew that, you know, if we built mob, you know, if we built mob to a certain point, we would be able to start kind of, you know, seeing some of those as well. Um, I didn't know what those numbers were or when they would come in. And I think probably because I went so hard at the sales side. And I think that that's probably, you know, one of my, 
definitely one of my skill sets is I guess like more of the business side and sales side that we were able to bring on clients, you know, relatively early when we had, you know, 4,000 followers on Instagram and 10,000 page likes on, uh, on Facebook. And, um, and then, yeah. And then those started coming in and you know, the, the kind of the cycle, the revenue cycle started and, um, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting also what you were saying a minute ago about like the pressure to perform immediately. It's almost Mm -hmm. like, and I certainly found this where, I started at 22 and you're like, fuck it, I'll have a go. And if nothing else, I'll be 24 and employable. And you almost don't, you almost are not setting yourself unrealistic goals because the immediate goal is just like showing up every day and giving it a go and figuring it out. And in a way Mm -hmm. that lack of business goal structure, like we, you know, the advice I've been given many times is like business plans are kind of worthless to a degree because they change and evolve and actually boxing yourself in with rigidity is probably the opposite of a dynamic growing, moving company. And there's a lot of advice that's probably advice that you would have been given that you wouldn't take, like don't work with your friends, make sure you get contracts straight away. You know, you kind of yeah the opposite of that. Yeah. I mean, the don't work with your friends one is, I mean, you know, it didn't, there wasn't anything acrimonious in the end between Rupert and I, um, he, he wanted to go off and do his own thing. I do definitely think that working with your friends and not working with your friends is probably quite a good piece of advice. Um, and you know, it can complicate things, but, but there are, you know, you have different relationships with different friends and actually Rupert and I had found a really good working groove. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, on the bit, you know, I've never written a business plan. Well, I, I have written like a, I guess I have written, you know, I've done like decks and things for like when at various points in the past, we've, you know, gone for investment and, you know, we did subsequently fail at getting investment every time. But um, there have been moments where I've sort of written out at that point in time what I think that we're doing and where I think that we're going. But I mean, one, yeah, I mean, it's sort of, it's weird with a, I don't know what it is, whether it's like industry specific, but at least for my industry, business plans, things do change so quickly. You know, you might get a huge deal over the line that you weren't expecting that will suddenly completely change everything. It can change, you know, and, and also, and also I guess like with media and online and digital, there are so many different avenues and verticals that you can explore, especially within food that, you know, there are things that, you know, you might think, you might think of one month that you hadn't thought of the month before and constant new ideas. That's the way that I work at least. Um, and, you know, if I'd written out a business plan right at the start, definitely where I'm at right now would look pretty, well, maybe it would look quite similar-ish in a way, but, you know, getting to that point in all the, weaves and moves that you have to do wouldn't kind of be in line with that yeah totally I do want to come back and talk to you about investment and 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 sales in a minute but um you went to university in Edinburgh um and you've talked about how you started how you started the business and how you utilized your friends I guess you were the customer and so were your mates so that was Mm. probably like you know some people start businesses uh, you hear about people who don't have kids starting kids brands and you think that's like mental to me. How would you yeah. do that? Cause you have no market knowledge, but what did you study at uni? Was it connected in any way? Has it been helpful having that degree? 
Uh, I read history um, and um, I, yeah, to an extent, like there are skills that I learned um, definitely around writing and, you know, laying out an argument or an approach and uh, making sure that I'm, you know, quite like rigorous and like regimented about, you know, reading back over my work before it goes out and, um, you know, checking things through and yeah, but, you know, um, you know, the 17th, studies of 17th century British society in no way like tie into the day-to-day of mob. But the, uh, but yeah, no, you know, general practices at university uh, definitely do. And also, and also, you know, when I left school, I'd had no idea. You know, I was also like, kudos to you for starting when you were 22, because even, you know, when I was 22, I feel like I was still flailing around and didn't have any idea. Um I mean, I still probably did when I was when I started Mob, but and I was sort of just about to be twenty five um, when I began Mob because Edinburgh's a four year course, and I took a year off before then. Um, and so, so yeah, you know, it also gave me the time as well to uh, you know work out what I liked and what I didn't like and what I wanted to do. And you know, I really realised that I had no idea what I wanted to do, which I guess is you know at least something that I just didn't have an idea and sort of propelled me into you know, a feeling of needing to maybe find something or create something for myself, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I I have very little, I was at Manchester and I have very little to say that's good about my time at university, but I do think that it's a really important incubation period to figure out what you want to do. And that side Mm. hustle that you can create you know, you show up and they're like, oh, you've got two hours of lectures a week. Welcome. And you're like, what the fuck does everyone do? But I didn't mm. drink. So I couldn't even go and like do that. So I think it's a, a great time. And I and I felt like I left young and knowing exactly what I wanted to do because I'd had three years of like, let me get to work. Like I'm, mm. I'm like caged. So I think if I'd started something straight after school, I'm got a job I probably I I, you know I love to think my entrepreneurial spirit would have prevailed but actually I probably would have just like got really good at my job and then had a pushy salary and and stayed in that so Mm. yeah when you hire people do you think about and look at degrees and things like that do you um think it's an important mark of discipline or commitment or is it not really relevant um uh... I don't know, maybe like for the more senior positions, it's interesting to see. But actually, I mean, the things that for me are most important when hiring are uh, firstly, like, I guess, previous job experience. Um, So, you know, for the more senior positions, uh, you know, wanting to make sure that they've had some direct experience in, you know, in the field into which we're hiring them. And um, and then I guess really just the interview process, uh, just seeing how seeing how we connect with them over the interviews seeing how they you know we always have a task in there um seeing how they respond to that task and and we you know always try and do kind of three interview rounds so we can really kind of get to know that person before making making the move on hire i mean yeah i don't know if you have the same experience hiring is a i mean it's like a constant you know undercurrent thing to be thinking about and also worrying about. Um, and, you know, I find it quite kind of a long and arduous process and it is quite anxiety inducing sometimes I feel because, you know, there's obviously, you know, when you do hire someone, there's, you know, worry attached to, I guess, like how good a fit that they're going to be. And if you made the right decision and, you know, it's equally kind of agonizing if there were, 
sort of two people who are like right on the line and you go for one of them. And then I always sort of like, you know, have sort of second, second thoughts and doubts and kind of look back on things. And, um, but I feel very blessed because we have an incredibly talented driven team and, you know, with, you know, with the exception of, you know, a couple of, a uh, couple of curveballs along the way, uh, there have been, you know, it's been a, it's been a kind of a really steady experience on that front. Um, and, yeah. Yeah, hiring is a bitch. I mean, it's probably the space mm. I've wasted the most money on. Like, I reckon, and it's it's interesting, like the language you use because it is kind of agonizing, right? It's like you're sort of you're 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 often taking a punt, like particularly in a business like that, like mine. People are literally paid to like bullshit you into like a sales piece where you're buying into the brand. So you're yeah. playing these like bizarre mind games of like, you know how do you really judge that in a business mm. that's so oriented around delivery? And when you're growing as a company, it's really hard culturally to know exactly who fits. And you might yeah. hire someone that then six months later, you're like, we have a different need as a business now. I think the biggest myth in business and hiring is like, I didn't realize how much more work I would have to do the bigger my team was, which sounds yeah. like a stupid thing to say, but you kind of think if you hire people, they'll they'll take on some of that management piece. And then you're like, oh, now I've got to be like the vision holder and inspire everyone and light a fire under everyone's ass every day. But also like being mum and dad, because I'm kind of the enforcer, but I've got to praise people and that's like yeah. quite contradictory. And you you're you're taking, you know, a pun. I, I think for me, probably about four years ago. I stopped taking it personally when people left and I now, you know, I feel great pride when people go on and do something else because you, I have a slightly different attitude about mm. helping them being a part of their career and their journey. But yeah, I mean, I've made some bad hires and in a small team, like that is felt hard and fast. Absolutely. And really hard to un unpick. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, I mean, yeah, we we. I was actually remarking to my ops director the other day that we have yet to have uh, a team member leave, um, I guess, through their own decision um, at this point in the business because we've only really been at this team size for you know for five or six months. I'm sure that 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 moment will come um, and we'll sort of take a bit of getting used to. But no, definitely, in you know, in a startup and in a small team, you feel it instantly um, because actually each new hire is really crucial and they can also have, you know, quite a strong impact on the culture and, you know, you see very quickly whether it is working or isn't working. So yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I always, you know, I, I always say that it, I think it's much, there's, it, it feels much nicer hiring people that aren't currently, and you know, I ha we have not done this along the way because I guess it's impossible to do so. It feels much nicer hiring someone who isn't currently in a role. Um, for me, that's like, that's always been something that has definitely taken the pressure off to an extent. Um, because, you know, if for whatever reason it might not work out, at least you're not kind of left with a, you know, a bit of a nagging guilt that you've like pulled them out of one thing in order to, I don't know. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just so tricky. It's so it's tricky. Yeah. And you have a huge responsibility. Like it's a huge emotional, I guess, undertaking slash burden but you you can't help but feel you know if you think about all the challenges that you face as someone who runs a business you know your team mm -hmm. is susceptible to all those things too and it's very difficult to have a, a culture first business where you don't feel 
upset for them when they go through stuff and they do they all break up with boyfriends and parents yeah. get divorced and they have a personal life and yeah. you know whether it's that they're hungover or there's something more severe going on and it, it's you kind of flip between I think knowing where the line is of supporting them and encouraging them but also mm-hmm. it is a business and you have to run a business if people have to like get the dog on <laughs> Yeah, Emily, I'm, I, also, I am so completely of your way of thinking, and that is, I guess that that's like the that's like the kind of the perpetual situation in question that you always have to and line that you have to tread. It's but you know, yeah, it's it's it's, it's damn tricky. I spent uh, probably the whole of my twenty. I'm now thirty one, but I spent the whole of my twenties thinking I was one good hire away from fixing it. I don't know if right, you ever yeah. have that where you're like the next hire or the next like you always kind of feel like you know when you can open up the next budget or find the next person it will change everything but yeah I guess it's um it's it's an ongoing thing and an HR personnel like I guess either businesses find someone really robust to like manage and deal with it but it's it's, it's not realistic in a small business like that is a massive cost yeah definitely and like you know I was talking with yeah, I mean, we've been having a lot of these conversations at the moment. Is obviously the team size is getting bigger, and also, you know, definitely in this day and age, right now, everything being digital and you know, Zoom and Slack and all of the crap um, is a, you know, it's definitely not conducive to like the most like you know positive working environment. Things, you know, nuances and. Uh, and intonation and everything gets lost, so lost over all of these like more digital means. And um, you know, I was I was like so I was so like full of the belief, you know, two years ago that Mob was like the greatest place ever to work. We had this we had this beautiful studio, and it's like amazing light and plants all over the studio, and free food getting sent to us every day, and fun and music and like young people all there, like creatives together. And it was such an incredible vibe in Mob Kitchen before lockdown happened. And then Mm. lockdown happened and like a lot of that magic about working at Mob is like definitely sort of faded away. And a lot of people's experience working at Mob is just sort of, you know, plugging away over Slack and emails and calls. And there's Mm. none of that kind of, there's none of that sort of original culture there. So, you know, it's something that we're working really hard to, you know, try and inject again into the team at least, you know, kind of remotely for the time being. Um, and then, you know, and then hopefully we will all be able to kind of go back to normal working conditions. And I just cannot wait for that to be the case. But, um, but yeah. And then the HR thing as well, it's like, you know, when things aren't going well and when little issues arise, you know, I've thought about, you know, HR and, and kind of, you know, looked into that. And then like on the flip side to that decision of maybe doing it, then it kind of opens a whole other can of worms of, you know, if you're in a team of 15 people and, you know, you're getting kind of anonymous complaints and whatever, like really as a startup, you're kind of in a culture where, you know, you do need one singular creative direction in order to get the business like properly established, which benefits everyone in the long run, hopefully um mm. and so so it's just very difficult yeah it's just difficult to sort of to know what to do we've just we've just we've um kind of appointed our head of business development who's called uh olivia who is just so unbelievably lovely and kind and 
gentle and sweet and uh, and caring and has so much empathy. And, she, you know, we've appointed her as our kind of our go-to within the business. If anyone's got an issue, we, you know, we've asked them, you know, we've said that they can go to her and she will kind of, you know, be a, be a mediator in that respect. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, like, I think if you have dedicated HR and a small team, you're basically giving everyone a phone number to just complain constantly. And right, I think yeah. that's, you, you've got to, it's again, it's like this, the, the biggest thing I've struggled with is where is that line between like, you know, I taking very seriously the impact of remote working and pandemics and on a young green team, but also being like, there's a level of resilience that is required to do your job. And you, you know, you've got to be very careful about balancing feeling everything versus being neglectful and it's mm-hmm. like it is a really hard line to tread because also crucially everyone responds differently and you kind of need a different I speak to people in my team differently based on what I know they can probably handle and how they um respond and how they talk to other people so I think mm-hmm. it's it's an ongoing challenge and it's really hard to to fix and and I, I 100% agree with you the I need to be in a physical space with people. I need my team here. They've done a great job remotely, but the feedback I get from the businesses I work with is like the remote thing is calamitous and productivity has fallen off a cliff. And (laughs) as you, you know, my team are like, please do not suggest another Friday afternoon quiz because we will quit like that. I know. Yeah. I don't want to know like when, like, tower bridge was built i don't give a fuck and i'm like no i i will just send you alcohol and and they're like thank yeah. you <laughs> it's just like that is our bonding so it's um yeah it's a, it's a tough one um in in addition to what we were talking about about people i know you've talked a little bit about like pressure to have a specific career path and we talked earlier about you studied um I guess an academic degree or discipline, but obviously this is a very creative pursuit. I recently listened to a TED talk by someone someone called Emily Wapnick, who talks about the idea of being a multi-potentialite. So the idea that people have multiple potentials. So you could be, uh, you could work in the city, but on the weekend you could go and be a photographer and have a very creative outlet. And now there's so much more space for the side hustle or whatever version, you know, whatever language people are using. Do you think that it's prohibitive to encourage people that they need like one direct career path? And for you, has your success with Mob Kitchen been that you were open to having and exploring different potentials and ideas from what you were sort of constructed from school? Yeah. Um, I mean, firstly, I feel very lucky. Like I don't, uh, you know, I was able to move home with my parents and start up a business that wasn't, you know, financially supporting itself for a year and a half. I totally recognize, you know, that I wouldn't have been able to do that if I wasn't in such a privileged position. And I think some people are not in the privileged position where they can, you know, take their time over their careers and, you know, not have, you know, I guess like not kind of, go into one thing and make sure they're damn good at it so they can be earning enough money to kind of keep them and their their loved ones you know above water um but you know yeah you know on the flip side of that i also think that you know definitely for you know people you know leaving school and for university students and and graduates i do think that there is this message of uh, you know, find your thing and find your one thing and like go for it. And I think for people that don't 
feel like they know what that is, uh, I think that that can be a really scary thing. And, you know, not everyone can be like dropped into the same mold. And there are some people who, you know, might have lots of different things that they're excited about and ideas that they want to explore. And, you know, those ideas might sit out of the kind of the usual, you know, the usual job titles or uh, roles that they could go into. And, um, you know, my parents were terrified when I started Mob Kitchen. My dad, especially, you know, he was like, you know, he loves me and my brothers dearly and really just wants the kind of best for all of us, but was very nervous um, when I left school with a, you know, first class degree in history and turned around to him and said, I'm going to move back home and start my own like digital food business. And he just didn't have a clue what I was on about. Um, so, Do you think that's partly because there's a generational thing where we are now doing jobs that didn't exist or weren't mm. accessible to our parents and our parents want to help and support us and give us an internship with a friend who like works in a, in an industry. And you know, there's almost a like less use for their advice because we're doing jobs that didn't exist. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I think the, uh, I think like it just, it definitely creates like a worry and an anxiety because there's just a lack of understanding about like what that, what that kind of new or different career path is. And, you know, at the end of the day, I feel, you know, once you get past the kind of, you know, the subtle put downs and the, um, you know, them trying to like steer you off course when you're doing everything you can to make something work, which is like really defeating and difficult as and when that's happening. If you can see past that, it's definitely, you, I, I think you can understand like a, just a lack of understanding and like therefore an anxiety and a worry and a concern about, you know, their kids and just wanting, you know, to make sure that their kids are going to be okay. Um, but, but yeah, no, I mean, I, d definitely I, I didn't feel, I was completely clueless as to what I wanted to do when I was, you know, in the process of graduating university and, you know, in the year before graduating, when everyone was kind of, you know, doing these big, long applications for grad schemes and all of this, which I was so daunted and overwhelmed by um, and, you know, felt that I didn't have, you know, a very clear kind of like route that I wanted to go in. And, you know, there were lots of different things that I had about me that I wanted to explore and maybe a love of food and a love of film and video and knowing that I was maybe good with some marketing bits and sales bits and, um, and yeah, and so, you know, Mob mob ended up being sort of quite a nice kind of release for all of that in a way, but, uh, you know, yeah, it definitely like was together. Yeah. together all of those all of those things um the timing of the business came off the back of a clean eating phase right where everyone ate quinoa and had ibs and it was like that was sort of enough to qualify you to be a nutritional expert and yeah. it was very pop there was a wave of it it was predominantly female in the first instance and it was quite restrictive it was often quite um quite long lists of ingredients but actually mm. quite sort of pitching quite simple food and all often food that was um caught uh, some sort of si symptom to um previous eating habits that were seen as negative so it wasn't indulgent it was it was almost the opposite did you want to rally against that did you know that price was the usp obviously you launched to students was it a sense of this is just not realistic. Like people have way less money, they have way less time and they're way less 
interested in the intricacies of random products they can't buy in their local store? Was that very conscious as a as a solution to something you were seeing as a problem? Um, I mean, to be completely honest, when I started Mob, I like wasn't, and potentially if I had been, I would have been like much less um, enthusiastic about it being this kind of million dollar idea. But it, um, I wasn't really that aware of. I mean, I knew Delicious Yella, and I knew I knew of Delicious Yella, and I knew of the Hemsleys, and I kind of knew about that whole space. But I wasn't a big Instagram user, and I wasn't. I definitely didn't. I, as a result, as a result of that, I wasn't seeing that content. I definitely didn't go onto their websites and use that content. So it was for me. It was the content and the recipes was way more a reaction against the kind of the overtly food porny sides and less about that other side. But um, but yeah, no. I mean, you know, that has definitely played into it. And I guess like there were those two ends of the you know of the of the spectrum that were both getting quite a lot of airtime as and when mob came in of the, you know, the food porny side, like on the channels tasty. And then, you know, the Hemsley's and delicious yellow and, you know, all of that nonsense that was on, you know, the other end of the spectrum. And, um, I guess in the middle of the spectrum, there was, you know, still, and there is Jamie and BBC good foods. But the problem with those platforms is that, um, they're just not written in a way and sort of created for young people, I don't think. And they're actually, you know, probably BBC Good Food is a resource that, you know, students will use. But, you know, it isn't written by young people, for people. I don't think when you get on BBC Good Food or Jamie Oliver that you feel, you know, as a student or a young professional, you really feel like at home on those spaces. Um, so there was sort of a, a gap in the middle there um, of, you know, for reliable relatable, affordable, accessible foods. Um, definitely affordability was key. Um, you know, that was kind of, and the content created in a way for, for students and young professionals. So yeah. And the affordability element was, was really important. You know, at the beginning, the, the tagline was feed four for under a tenner. So it was all about the idea was, you know, and still is creating kind of restaurant quality food at home, but on a budget and you, you know, don't need to break the bank in order to do that. To, to, to finish, I'd be interested to know where you get your inspiration or your education from. Do you listen to podcasts? Do you read? Do you um, scour the internet? Is there anything that you've come back to time and time again as a good source for your own creativity? Um, I mean, different, different things, really. You know, on food creativity, um, I, yeah, you know, use the internet and, uh, you know, use recipes from family and recipes from friends and recipes in restaurants. And when I've been away on holiday and, you know, now we've got a food team, you know, two people working full time in the food team at Mob, you know, we have kind of weekly meetings and it's, you know, very creative and ideas based and everyone putting forward ideas and, you know, it kind of being a, you know, a kind of creative setting where we can come up with different, um, different dishes. Um, on, on the business front, I, I don't, I don't listen to podcasts really. And I also don't really read, um, which I feel like I should probably start doing more to like broaden my uh, mental horizons. But the, I have a couple of people in my life that I, you know, lean on quite a lot in terms, you know, for advice and, um, guidance. My dad, um, who, 
you know, was very nervous and, you know, anxious at the start of Mob about it working. And we, we actually had quite a tricky relationship during that period because um, it sort of felt to me that he just sort of really didn't uh, approve and um, want me doing what I was doing. But, you know, what I guess when it proved itself and, uh, you know, when he could sort of see the vision, um, he, he sort of still oversees mob, the mob finances. He's like the yin to my yang in that respect, very pragmatic and um, slow reaching decisions. And so, you know, I lean on him for most kind of advice things to do with business and, you know, staff and uh, strategy. Joe Glick, uh, who is uh, our only investor, he's, he, he, uh, he bought 10% of the business for 20K about three years ago now um, when we needed our first uh, kit for our studio setup. Um, and he's only a year old, or he's actually not, I think he's about six months older than me, but he's incredibly precocious, uh, when it comes to business. And so when you talk to him, it feels like you're talking to someone who's like been in business for, uh, literally for like 50 years. So he, Mm -hmm. you know, so I kind of go to him for advice a lot and, um, and yeah, and you know, just a couple of, you know, I have people who I've worked with, you know, and like other young, you know, youngish founders, you know, um, sort of talking with them about their experiences that are by and large always, you know, there'll be similar things. And it's nice, it's nice not feeling kind of isolated and alone in that and, you know, being able to talk it through with, you know, people who've been through something similar. We, I guess the the purpose of this podcast was twofold. One, that everyone's fucking busy all the time and talking about it. And a mark of status really is how much, how much extra shit you're doing. But also that with that busyness comes very few opportunities to reflect and sit in the space that you have and take stock. Is there anything as a sort of parting question that you have learned that you would want to advise if you were chatting to someone who was starting a business or thinking about starting a business or, you know, maybe they've been derailed in the last year or lost their job or been made redundant and have an idea. Is there anything that you've learned from your experiences um, starting and running and scaling a successful business that you would want them to know? Um, Please say yes, because it would be so awkward if you're like, no. No, no, I could never. Um, No, yeah. I mean, I'd say, um, I'd say don't rush into something. And, you know, if you, if you, if you have an idea, you know, on an evening and you've had a few drinks with your mates, uh, I think that there is this kind of, you're right. Absolutely. There's this tendency at the moment that, you know, you have this idea and it can go viral and you can be a millionaire overnight and it's incredible and it's exciting. And I think that, you know, I guess through no real choice of my own as I really wish that I had had, you know, uh, sort of overnight viral success and I hadn't had to slog away as hard as I have. Um, but the, you know, having an idea being like absolutely resolute about how, about the idea and how brilliant it is and, you know, that you know it will work and that you've explored all the other, you know, areas in that space and you've looked extensively at kind of competition and what other people are doing and knowing that you occupy a little space, however small it is in the market that, you know, no one else is doing in quite the same way that you are. Um, And then, you know, once you have that, you know, really putting in the legwork and the, and, you know, and the hours to creating all the things that you need to create in order to make it happen. And, just feeling confident and comfortable in the knowledge that, you know, you're building something that you really believe in and that, you know, you don't need kind of overnight 
you know, public gratification or what, you know, I don't know if that makes sense, or, you know, public recognition and success very quickly. Um, and then, you know, launching it and putting it out there and sticking to your guns and like really, really, really going for it, despite the, the hurdles and the pitfalls that you will doubtless experience, you know, much more so in those first six months and just always just being so certain that your idea is is brilliant and you're going to make it happen no matter what and i think that having that like resolution that like long-term resolution for me has made all of the difference and that there have been some like horribly low moments where investment things have fallen through and you know real genuine moments of you know thinking this absolutely isn't going to work and you know this is going to be a terrible failure but just you know always just having that light inside you knowing that it will knowing that you're going to make it happen. Um, it's the end of my pet talk. Yeah, no, that's, no, it's great. I'm like, it's the slow and steady wins the race. And it's, I agree yeah. with you, courage of your convictions, resilience, sticking to your guns. A lot of very successful business people say, I was told by multiple investors, it was terrible. I was told, you know, and there was always mm. a, a resounding feeling that they felt like they had something of value to offer. And it's, you, if you knock on enough doors, like so, someone's going to, someone's going to open one. So yeah, really, really good advice. Um, Ben, thank you so much. I know you're busy. I know you're remote and growing a dynamic, fast paced, interesting, desirable business. So I appreciate you taking the time out to talk to me. And um, I look forward to the feedback from this episode because I know lots of people uh, will be fascinated to hear more about your story. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Mm -hmm.